0: checking the occlusion as part of your periodontal examination is a must. Uh, It's something which is often left um, and it is really important and valid. Um, Just because I don't feel it's the primary cause of of periodontitis doesn't mean to say I find it any less important in progression of periodontitis. And it has to be addressed, especially when I show you those cases where they were in part exacerbated by a trauma from occlusion. If you don't treat the trauma from occlusion when it's exacerbated a periodontal problem, it's never going to be treated. So it's really important.
1: Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career with your host, Jazz Gulati. I am getting very nervous and very anxious. Why? Because it's been so many episodes since I talked about something occlusion related. So when this happens, I get very nervous. So let's let's focus back in, let's pull it back into occlusion, can we? Uh, Today is all about perio and occlusion. I'm joined by my good friend, specialist periodontist, Richard Horwitz. And we're gonna sort of do some myth busting or perhaps some uh, changing of perceptions. Can Occlusion cause perio. I was about to say, can perio cause occlusion? That'd be stupid. Uh, Can occlusion, and what I mean by occlusion is, can someone with a dodgy bite, are they more susceptible to perio? Uh, Is that a thing? Like, you know, occlusal trauma, we know that occlusal trauma exists what role does occlusion actually play in periodontal bone loss? So that's the kind of stuff we're, we're, we're covering today. So welcome everyone to episode 47 of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. Now, another massive thank you is due for everyone. Uh, around about a month ago now, something uh, pretty awesome happened. Uh, we crossed, and I say we because you know, you guys are like family to me now. A lot of you on the Protrusive Dental Community Facebook group uh, and I love love seeing you guys there. Um, we crossed fifty thousand downloads, right? And this is this is pretty big, right? A lot of podcasts that get created—it's it's like businesses. Like uh, nine out of ten new businesses will fail in the next five years, or something like that. Is a famous quote, right? So. Um, a lot of podcasts started and they never reached 50,000 downloads. Uh, and so I am so, so thankful to you all for for giving up your, your time to listen in your commutes while you're chopping onions, while you're gardening, that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. So thank you, community, uh, which reminds me, I need to change your name uh, and I need your help. If you can think of a better name for the people, the good people who listen to the podcast from something else other than family or community, what would be a good name for you guys, right? Help me out. I'm gonna post on the Protrusive Dental Podcast community Facebook group as well. And hopefully we can get some good ideas. You can Instagram me as well at at Jazzy Gulati. Uh, but before we get to the episode, of course, I owe you a Protrusive Dental Pearl. This episode's Protrusive Dental Pearl is when you're doing anterior composites and you want to get a very nice contact point, which we all do, obviously, the choice is often twofold okay and this could also be applied to resin veneers you could either do the mylar pull technique uh, or you can do and i've talked about that uh, once before uh, some episodes ago like a little mini episode but i want to focus in on uh, the other technique which is actually using a matrix band and the matrix band of choice and i'm sure many of you know this already is to use a posterior sectional matrix band but use it vertically okay anteriorly i'll see if i can get a photo of this here uh, of me me doing this um, now one of the places where i saw this being demonstrated in the best way and showing both of those techniques i.e using a matrix band on its side vertically, uh, such as the Garrison B100 or the Tor VM soft one that can be used as well. Um, Compared to using the mylar pull technique, and the nuances around that was the mini small makeover course uh, by Dipesh Palmer. He really went over a lot of the I mean, so many cases and stunning case after case after case. Um, And he really goes over several indications. So, uh, uh, you know, hat tip to uh, Dipesh Palmer amazing talented clinician that he is Uh, and so the tip is to use a posterior sectional matrix band vertically and that could be you can use many but the b100 seems to be quite popular for that garrison i tend to use the tor vm which is like a russian brand you can get that from incidental limited Uh, so i hope you enjoy that little tip next time when you when you're doing a, a class four you can just put the matrix band in a bit of a wedge Uh, and and then uh, this is once you build up your palatal wall so you build up your palatal wall uh, and then to handle the interproximal to get the nice contour these curved bands uh, can be quite good to get the right contour measly or distally for example so I hope that little tip helped. Before we dive into the episode I want to discuss one more thing that we discussed in a previous episode with Shaz Memon. We talked about personal branding for dentists so if you haven't heard this episode already do check it out and my pearl then was to check out this uh, review platform for dentists called Doctify which uh, I quite like I get quite a lot of views from patients and some of my patients come from there it's a great way to collect genuine reviews from your patients and it looks really nice when you type in the dentist name on Google that it comes up now the feedback I've had for uh, from a lot of people is that hey you know my I'm an associate and when I told my principal that I want to start collecting reviews for me myself they're a bit funny about it which it's a real shame I think like putting myself in the shoes of a principal I get it like you don't want your associate to be collecting their own reviews because one day what if they go then all those reviews go with them but that's kind of the point the associate's self-employed okay but think of it as a good thing like if the associate's getting good reviews and getting patients coming through the door for the for the associate then they're doing their own marketing, right? It's, it's a great thing. So I think there is a win-win to be found in there. So uh, for those people who are still reluctant, uh, Alex from Doctor fire very kindly, he came back to me and said, hey, for anyone who listens to the Patrician podcast, he can do you guys a favor. He's willing to do 50% off for the first four months. That way you can test if this is something that works for you. If you're able to collect reviews at a decent enough pace uh, and you will be if you, if you prompt your patients, they'll be happy to review you usually. So off for four months. And so check it out. Uh, All you have to do is when you um, sort of uh, are discussing with Dr. Fi about signing up, they'll ask you, hey, how'd you hear about us? You say, Protrusive Dental Podcast, I want the 50% off for four months. Then just give it a go, you know, Uh, give it a go for four months, see what you think. uh, And then the more reviews you collect, the more. the more you get out of it really, and then you'll be able to see the response that you get from that. So I hope that helps you guys who are sitting on the fence uh, and I'm hoping that uh, even the principals who want to get Five for their practice will be able to benefit from that. Anyway, let's learn all about perio and inclusion. Richard Horwitz, uh, it's gr- great to have you on the Protrusive General podcast. Thank you so much for
0: coming on. Thank you for having me. Really grateful for you, for you inviting me here.
1: No, you're, you're a friend of mine, we went to, to uni, you were a, a few years above me at the time, and I then went on to, after qualifying, I met you on a, on a tube, and that's when I found out, I think you were commuting to, to Eastman at the time to do your perio yeah. training, uh, and then next, time, next thing you know, we're at an Indian restaurant, we're at Regency, we're having uh, lamb chops and, and whatnot, uh, so it's, it's great <laughs> to see you again over Zoom. H- how's lockdown been for you?
0: Um, it's, it's been good, uh, well, it's been good. Um, it's been tough, but I always like to, you know, find the silver lining and be positive. And for me, it's been a bit of a paternity leave, as I think it has been for you as well. Um, so it's been great to spend time with with uh, my uh, my daughter, who's 11 months, um, and yeah, seeing her cruel for the first time, putting herself up on bits of furniture, gnawing at bits of furniture while she's teething. Um, so it's no, it's been really lovely, and I would never have had that. Um, At the same time, I'm excited to go back to work. So uh,
1: yeah, I'm the same, absolutely. So the same exact journey as you, seeing the crawling development, standing, all the mischief and stuff. So it's been great. So yeah, my son's ten months and ten and a bit months, and Sophie's obviously eleven months. So it's, 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 I think we've shared something special over the last few months. But yes, we're both uh, keen to go back to work. And for for me, it's going to be Friday. For you, it's going to be tomorrow. For those listening, by the time this episode's published, we're hopefully going to be in the swing of things and not dressed as uh, space suits anymore. I mean, I've got my hood now, so I, I will be yeah. dressed
0: as a, as a space alien. You're going to be going for a mask? I think so, yeah. It means I can't do my designer stubble, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well,
1: for, for, for those who don't know uh, uh, who you are, Richard, uh, please yeah. tell us about yourself uh, and what you do day in, day out, your speciality, uh, and yeah. what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Okay. Um, I'll start at the beginning. Um, I'm... Born in London, um, so grew up in London, went up to Sheffield and had five fantastic years there, Uh, met yourself in Sheffield, um, and yeah, it was a a great experience. Uh, People there are so warm and friendly, and I always have a soft spot for Sheffield, and I do miss it. Um, Friends and family in London, so I came back to London um, and did my foundation training. I found out what I liked and didn't like in that year, Um, that was a really important year for me. Every time... I found a case which I wasn't so sure about and wanted to refer. I wanted to see what the specialist was doing that was so special. Um, I wanted to be able to see what, what could be done that I couldn't do or didn't understand how to do. Uh, so that was a great learning curve for me. I also found out what I really didn't like as well. Um, we were chatting before, I was so happy to see your last podcast uh, with Mark Bishop. He's a fantastic tutor. He taught me complete dentures. He was a brilliant teacher, uh, is a brilliant teacher. Um, in, that, in those first years, when I was a general dentist, I found out what I wasn't good at. And just to put this in perspective, I made a denture for a patient um, in a practice I was working at in Dunstable uh, outside of Luton. Was a great practice. I made an Um It was one of these ivory style because I was into perio. I thought I, I knew. I know I want to do perio and I want to make it cleansable. So I made this ivory style denture for him. Sp- spoon denture. Spoon denture. Pretty much with two Adams cribs. Okay. Okay. Uh, it, it was uh, not something to be proud of, but I, I, I made it. Um, Then I I forgot about this denture, obviously, because I don't keep a recollection of every denture I make. I I go to, uh, I do my training at the Eastman, um, my three-year specialty training um, in Perio, Um, enjoying it. It's great. In our final year, they send us out on this outreach program to uh, work in specialist clinics in the community, and I work in this place in Bedford. And I see this patient of mine in Bedford, He recognized me, I didn't recognize the patient. Uh, And I I looked at this denture and I thought, God, that is a bad denture. (laughs) And I didn't say anything, I just said, when did you have your denture made? Because I think you need a new one. He said, you made it for me. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. You said really sorry? I said, I'm really sorry. (laughs)
1: i I think i was thinking
0: i'm really sorry more than anything else Uh, Uh, yeah so it's a bit of a bit of a long story but it's just an anecdote So, in finding perio as my specialty i found things i didn't like in general dentistry i was never uh, i didn't want to i felt like i really wanted to excel in things i loved and perio surgery um, implants were the subjects which i really wanted to master um and um, yeah. So
1: that was the DF1 year where you decided uh, in your journey?
0: Um, I'd say the end of the DF1 and DF2 year. Yeah.
1: And did you do any shadowing of specialists? And, and if you don't mind me asking, how many specialists did you shadow or for how long? Because something I advocate for, for young yeah. dentists, DF1s is just go out there and shadow to get the maximum exposure. Uh, how was your journey in relation to shadowing and mentorship?
0: So I shadowed... Uh, an orthodontist, endodontist, prosthodontist, periodontist. I shadowed really every, fi- every specialist I could find. Um, anyone who I'd referred to, I'd ask if I could shadow. Um, so I could see the journey of my patient. Uh, patient thought I was fantastic, which I, I am caring and interested in them. But it's, it's a great thing to do to see your patient through the journey. Um, and then you get to learn what the specialist does, um, which is great. And you find out I mean, actually in Sheffield, I loved endo uh, and I, I was, I want to be an endo. Um, oh, right. Okay. So, and then I got into foundation year and I thought, I really, I find I'm stressing. Like every time I do an endo, I get stressed. I get heart palpitations. I'm just, I go home and I'm like, <laughs> what a stressful day. Um, every time I was doing perio, um, first of all, I was thinking, God, there's so much I don't know. And even through my course, I I remember the first two weeks was hand scaling. We did like a hand scaling masterclass. I had no idea about these hand instruments. Um, I just didn't, there was so much to learn. There's uh, so many I,
1: nuances, uh, right, of every instrument that they manufacture, uh, yeah. which angle to hold it at, which part's yeah. cutting, which part's non-cutting, uh, the various little things, which you know, we just think we just pick this up uh, and we just start scraping. But really, there's a way to do it. And there's, uh, you, know, you can actually be doing a lot of damage or, or doing something completely ineffectively if you're doing it wrong.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I felt was that within my journey, there were so many new things which I just didn't know, which I was thirsty to learn about. Um, so that's why I, I kind of fell on to Perio, um, and yes, mentors are really important. Um, uh, I had, I mean, I, I used to shadow uh, Jonathan Lack, is a periodontist um, um, who I shadowed a lot and who encouraged me. He was teaching at the time at the Eastman uh, and encouraged me a lot to, uh, to 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 go forth with with periodontal training. Um, so, and, yeah, and really at the moment,
1: time. am I yeah, am I right that you work in uh, is it Wimpole Street or Harley Street at the moment?
0: So I'm in Wimpole Street in Hampstead. I'm between the two and um, I do lots of uh, lecturing for um, the CPD department at uh, the Eastman uh, on the aesthetic dentistry course uh, and other courses they run there. So yeah, I enjoy it. It's good.
1: Excellent. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app nothing. we worked so hard on this protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. We now know a little bit more about you, Richard. Let's yeah. get into the main topic for today, which is the main reason why I had this lovely pink background for you. Uh, <laughs> so that you know, it reflects Perrier. I've never gone for pink before. So I'm Loving
0: go. the pink. First of all, I have a lecture title, which I call Thinking Pink. Um, so that's all over it. Um, but yeah, it's like you've got <laughs> you've got the the lighter stipple pink at the top of health and then the, the purple disease at the bottom i love it it's the, <laughs> the, the contrast is is i mean my computer is too old to be able to produce a background like that um but i love it i think i better have another brilliant
1: thank you so much well uh the yeah. thing i want to talk about is something that you know we, we we were talking on instagram and stuff something that you know i'm already have an interest in it's uh, occlusion it's power function it's bruxism so i know that imperio there are some very good long term studies. Now, you know, you know, way more than I do about uh, this entire subject. But I think of studies, like, is it Axel or Axelson, like those sorts of studies where they in in practice over many decades, they follow up patients and they show that, wow, we can really um, keep teeth uh, with with good periodontal treatment and good um, oral hygiene regime. So I know that perio is quite rich in literature, uh, and some of it is is actually very good. How much is there in relation to the role of ruxism and parafunction and perio?
0: So short answer, not a lot, um, but I'll, I'll go into it in a little bit more detail. Um, it was really the 70s where we had most of the studies, which we now um, come to to look to when we're uh, treatment planning, when we are looking at occlusion in perio. And occlusion is a big part of my examination. Um, Now, various periodontists will have different levels of importance put on occlusion, and people will go with different schools of thought. Um, I think it's incredibly important Um, It's a little bit of chicken and the egg, which came first uh, when it comes to perio or or occlusion. Um, But I think perio is all about removing causes, uh, controlling the etiology. And whilst, well, not to give the game away, uh, whilst whilst trauma from occlusion is not the cause um, of periodontal destruction, it's an exacerbating factor. And like all modifying, exacerbating factors, risk factors, they need to be controlled if they can be. Um, so it's important. And I'll, I'll I'll talk to you when we, when we ch- chat more, really about um, why I've come to that conclusion as well.
1: But Richard, now if you want to study something like that, it's, it's almost impossible to study. For example, if we're gonna design, design a randomized controlled trial, looking at a uh, parafunction bruxism, there's so many variables, how long the teeth are in contact for, to what force, the size of the masseters, uh, what kind of parafunction, is it clenching? Is it uh, excursive? Uh, and also all the myriad of uh, inflammatory factors, the blood tests, vitamin D, it's just too many factors to be able to Absolutely. come up with such a study. So really we might never know the truth, but we you know you, you sound like we have some good ideas. So tell me a little bit more where your what your current thinking is, but I also want to know as a periodontist, what is it that you look for in an occlusal exam, which may be different to what I look for, or maybe it might be the same.
0: I think it will be similar, but we'll see. I mean I would look for um, I would look for um, guidance. I'd look for anterior guidance um, I'd look for lateral excursions I'd see um, if there's fremitus in any teeth um, I'd look to see the incisor relationship, um, is there an anterior open bite, which may have further implications on the posterior dentition. Um, I would look for um, wear facets. I'd look for um, non-working side interferences, um, all these things that can influence bone loss. Um, And um, because we do know, I mean, when you look at these studies, um, now, the human ones aren't many, uh, because how can you design a study? Uh, and when they do have them, they the, re- the original historical ones, they're cadavers, um, which have had tooth wear. And then you can't really, it's it's difficult. So you have these hypotheses, like you have a hypothesis from Glickman, which shows that there's these zones of co-destruction. And But I think when when further studies were done on on beagle dogs, um they manage to see histologically what's going on when you apply a certain force on a tooth, and if that um, if there is an if there's periodontitis with the with the um, trauma occlusion, or if it's in a reduced periodontium, or if it's in a healthy periodontium. So all these things are measured, um, and all of these are um, are important in forming. Um, an overall idea of the, of the role. So, and what we know from those studies is that we know that um, we know that if you are a periodontally healthy um, dog, okay, uh, or, or human, <laughs> uh, you can infer, <laughs> um, that you'll get no further periodontal destruction, uh, you'll get, sorry, you'll get no further pocket depth increase if there is no inflammation, if there's no, no periodontitis. Um, what you will get is bone loss, okay and you'll get a widening of periodontal ligaments you'll get mobility increase but you won't get pocket increase and you won't get clinical attachment loss
1: okay but but the surely by bone loss that that infers clinical attachment loss
0: no um so you you because you would still have the connective tissue attachment and the junction epithelium so you won't lose any attachment but radiographically you'll see changes Mm. um but the the relationship is bidirectional because if you were that to then um, let's say this is a bruxist who doesn't have uh, any periodontal disease, and let's say you treat them with a, uh, a splint splint therapy, and um, it works really well. Once that trauma from occlusion is is addressed, you will find radiographic infill of the uh, either bony defects or widened periodontal ligament. Um, so that is reversible if there's no inflammation. Uh, so and it's th- the same th- let me just you-
1: home in on that. Then Let me just home in on that point. So you, what mm. you've just suggested is that if you have someone who through your therapy, you've managed to control their oral hygiene, you yep. uh, remove any sort of uh, factors contributing to inflammation, yeah, and, and now the 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 other piece of the jigsaw puzzle is controlling the forces, which you've suggested with a splint, for example, right? Yeah. And and that as a as a package, so one without the other, you know, you can't let the information continue. But as a package, that has helped to to, to see radiographic healing. Am, am I right in what I've been further?
0: So um, you were talking about someone with periodontal disease, this can be in someone without periodontal disease, you'll still mm. see winding of periodontal ligament and, and bony defects if they have uh, trauma from occlusion, but they won't have increased pocket depths. And if the type
1: of bone loss that I've, I've classically described it radiographically is, is a funneling.
0: Yes. Yes, because you get that movement within the periodontal ligament. Um, but what you're doing, you'll stretch the periodontal, you'll stretch the, the attachment, you will get bone loss, but you won't get pocket reduction unless, of course, there is inflammation so inflammation is the key here if there's if there is inflammation you will exacerbate the amount of bone loss and the progression of the periodontal uh, disease so so we know that from from both the north american studies and the swedish and the european studies um, we have
1: so the next question i'll ask you is when and also we can talk about the how but or do you even consider the role of occlusal adjustment and equilibration when we're when you're carrying out your periodontal therapy or post periodontal therapy to to make sure that all the factors are controlled so the forces being one factor which may exacerbate the issue so uh, do you subscribe to school of thought whereby occlusal adjustments and equilibration are part of your practice does that that make sense
0: absolutely um so as i'm not a prosthodontist uh, and i'm not a general dentist with occlusion as my subspecialty um i very much leave it to the experts in a sense to adjust the occlusion as they see fit uh, whether that be by taking occlusal records mounting just um semi-adjustable articulator and finding out what the consequences of adjustment is or whether that's creating a splint of michigan or any other type is up to them in a sense um, my view is it can't be left so if i would if i had a patient with trauma from occlusion i would definitely discuss it with the dentist and say I would recommend either an occlusal adjustment or a splint therapy as you see fit. Because I, I can guarantee if you had 10 dentists in a the room, they'd all say different ways of treating trauma from occlusion. And um, some will be splint therapy is the only way, and some will be adjustments the only way. Um, and each of them would think the other one, what they're suggesting is completely outrageous. So I think really my view is both work adjusting and using a splint. So whatever, at least you you, you address it and you don't ignore the problem. Um, I think the, the issue is, yes, without inflammation, it won't progress. But if you have a patient with periodontitis, they're prone to inflammation. And when you keep them a three-month recall, you'll always see sometimes okay, you've got all the pockets under four millimeters, you have them controlled, but something will pop up every so often. Um, And it's important not to leave an exacerbating factor there, which can cause further deterioration. Um, So I think it's always something that needs to be addressed, might not be the primary cause, but it can certainly make things worse for the patient.
1: Brilliant. Now, when we read these texts of like uh, Dawson, and if you subscribe to some of the, what what Panky teaches that actually, Mm. in a patient who is parafunctional or exhibits bruxism that you may be more likely to see a recession. Is is there any? Because um, sometimes I see a patient and you know I know they're known bruxers. They've got their large masters. They've got cracked teeth. And occasionally you see some teeth with recession. Now recession is multifold, multifactorial. We know there's the biotype that's in play. We know it's their brushing habit, which is very, very uh, heavily implicated. Their, mm. um, how much bone they have, all those sorts of things. But do, what do we know about recession defects at stemming primarily potentially from parafunction? Is there any causal link there?
0: Personally, I think there's too many factors um, for for, you, for one to pinpoint occlusion as being the cause of a recession. More often than not, it's to do with overbrushing, underbrushing, um, aberrant freedoms, biotypes, things like that. Um, it's... It's a difficult one because, yes, if you, if you have trauma from occlusion, you can get – well, trauma from occlusion, you won't get attachment loss. So you will only get recession if there's inflammation. Mm-hmm. So if someone is not brushing because they've got an aberrant freedom on the lower central incisor and it's really hard to clean, also that, that lower incisor is inframatous, okay, and it's just wobbling and it's, it's highly mobile, uh, has a lot of guidance concentrated on that one tooth. Probably going to exacerbate the recession, so it definitely has a role. I don't think okay. it's a causative factor. So it's Short, pretty similar. I appreciate actually. that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot, of it is, uh, and you know, like we said at the right at the beginning, we will never be able to prove exactly. There's too many variables. But what we do know so far is exactly what we said. These factors are contributory. They they play a role, but they're probably not the, the the main big player here. There's other things, you know, like inflammation, like their you know brushing habits. We need to consider. Now, I'm very aware that. Uh, Some students have started to listen to my podcast, and some young dentists. So, um, just explain fremitus. What is it? How do you? I mean, we're going back to basics here. What is it? How do you look
0: for it? It, it, You need to look at their static occlusion, where when they're biting together, what the relationship is, and when they're moving in left and right lateral excursions and uh, anterior guidance, what movement there is on the teeth. Um, With fremitus, if in lateral excursions, a tooth is mobile, um, and there is a heavy contact on that tooth. Um, then that's something which you need to be aware of and mark it down. Um, you need to mark it down because it can have uh, an adverse inf- impact on on that t- the health of that tooth.
1: I think you're right about checking uh in, in, in static. The the simple way I like to explain to, to young dentists is that when when pe- people bite together, you shouldn't hmm. see their teeth move like piano keys. You know how they just flick out. Yes. And, and the other thing that you could do is you, you put your fingers on their teeth. You know your index finger, your, your so your your actual fingers on their teeth. And when they when they bite together there might be the odd tooth where you feel excessive movement in the PDL. And that's a good way to to check as well, because sometimes not always visual is by how you feel it as well.
0: Absolutely. That's a really good, I mean, using a finger. Um, is really the best way. Um, I use finger and ask them to bite together and that's when you'll, f- you'll feel the tooth move. Um, so for those of you listening on the
1: podcast right now, uh, I took out the next bit uh, because really it was so visual. Um, Richard was showing these x-rays with defects. So essentially we were discussing anterior open bites. So have you ever wondered when you see an AOB patient and they also happen to have, let's say, posterior periodontal disease, And have you thought, hey, could it be that this patient's AOB is the cause of perio? Like having heavy contacts posteriorly, could could that have caused a perio? So that's what we discussed in a a group function type patient, obviously, because it's an AOB. Um, And we also discussed uh, periodontal splinting with composite. And that's sort of where the conversation led to. So let's start back up again after the visuals. Now, if you want to watch these cases and catch up with the visuals. Uh, it's on my website uh, via YouTube. And also if you want to get CPD, it's on dentinal tubules as well as so that's verifiable CPD on there. If you want to see that bit, but I didn't want to put that in there because it was so visual that you guys would just get lost. Well, well, I'm going to ask Should about splinting, but just worth mentioning for anyone uh, watching this right now, some people are listening, obviously, but what we can see here is mm. Rich has shown his um, uh, guided uh, tissue regeneration uh, very nicely, looks very neat surgery, but you can see the wear facets, uh, as you mentioned, uh, quite flat. On that molar and premolar, uh, and mm. in this case, the the bone the bony healing looks fantastic, uh, and we see a, a thick uh, composite uh, splint in the front, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But the reason it's thick is because, trust me, if it's thin, it will break. It'll have a cohesive yeah. fracture. So it's it sort of you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure we learn through trial and error that these things have to be thick. You you make that mistake once, and you learn it. You make it as thick as you can get away with.
0: It's more trial and error, believe me.
1: Uh. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, I mean, before we come onto the role of splinting generally for mobile teeth, where we suspect maybe yep. occlusal or, or not in a, as a role, I want to uh, touch on why, and you know, I'm not expecting you to know the answer to this, because I think no one knows the answer to this, but why do some people with AOBs go throughout life without any issues at all, and others have these sorts of issues? Why are some of them having um, cracked teeth and while others do not? Why, why are some having periodontal breakdown while others are not? It's, yeah. we just don't know. It's just one of those things. Now I, I have theories, right? My theory is that yeah. those who are producing a lot of forces, I mean, yes, they have their AOB, but unless they're actually at nighttime, if, if they're a 17 and a half minute chewer, and their teeth are touching, you know, 17 and a half minutes a day, then they're pro- with not much force, then, you know, the teeth aren't taking that much force. But nocturnally, during parafunction, we can produce four times as many forces as we can uh, when we're aware of it. So if you tally up the fact that we have a parafunctional patient with an AOB versus a less parafunctional patient or non-parafunctional, which are rare nowadays, with an AOB, then that may have one role. The other theory that I, I subscribe to is that there's perhaps a weak point. So if we look at their their teeth, if we look at their periodontium, and if we look at their you know TMJ, for example, then one of these they may, you know naturally have potentially a weak point. Whichever is the weakest link will suffer. So for example, if the biotype of their periodontium is is hard and you know what i mean the type that have got exostoses that are never going to get uh, perio because they've got surplus of bone even they they smoke 50 a day they don't brush but you know they don't have any perio because they're almost almost genetically uh, immune in a way to perio right so they got really uh, fantastic periodontium but then they're getting cracked teeth because the the parafunction is actually over overloading the teeth, but not overloading the threshold of perio. That's a theory. What do you think about that?
0: I think you you hit the nail on the head when you you said genetic. Um, We know whatever whatever health survey you look at, whether it be the adult dental health survey, the NHANES in in North America, if you look at the initial studies on periodontitis in populations in Sri Lanka, it's all the same. 50% of people have periodontitis, 10% have severe periodontitis. They're roundabouts. It's pretty much the same wherever you go. Now, so even in untreated populations, treated populations, Western civilization, third world, it's all the same, which means there's a massive genetic part to play. Yes, there are risk factors. You've got the smoking risk factor, you've got diabetes as a risk factor, which have strong links to periodontitis, but it's all it's all to do with susceptibility. And this is what I, I tell patients all the time. I'll say that, um, if I've diagnosed them with periodontitis, with severe periodontitis, I say, unfortunately, you are highly susceptible to something called periodontitis. Okay. Um, whilst, I mean, whilst 90% of people, as you said, could brush to their heart's content or could not brush to their heart's content and not have Perio disease. okay, the 10%, if they just look at plaque for a second, they've got periodontal disease. Mm-hmm. And so I think shifting the blame away from you're not brushing your teeth to you're susceptible to it. So you really need to. Um, it's a difference. And patients respond a lot better to it because they are empowered by the fact that they know that they have something which is Um, which they are susceptible to and that can be managed. Uh, And I think it's really, I think I've gone off on a massive tangent. No, Um, no, I think what you said um, was great. Yeah, coming back to the tangent, why do some people with OABs don't have that bone loss because 90% of individuals aren't susceptible to severe periodontal disease. If they are in that 10%, they're going to get it.
1: And do you, do you find that your patients with AOBs, now this is an interesting question because I, I, I just thought of it now, it wasn't scripted or anything. So no. those patients with AOBs that are susceptible to perio, are they also having the same bone defects around their anterior teeth? It depends. There are lots of factors. <laughs>
0: so like, okay, if they are smokers, they'll get, they'll get defects anteriorly um because by virtue of where they hold the cigarette um you you get a local vasoconstriction um as a and a general as well but more localized at the front but um or if they're mouth breathers and it's hard it's hard to brush you you get great inflammation anterior so there's lots of factors um but it's often i'll see posterior bony defects around patients with anterior open bites okay so so richard
1: what i want to know you showed that thick composite splint obviously and we discussed you know why that may be necessary so Tell us about the role of using splints. For example, some dentists may believe, uh, and I, I believe the what I, from what I was taught that actually sprint, splinting is more for patient comfort. It won't necessarily prevent them from losing their teeth or whatever. But I feel like the, I feel like the, the evidence base is Harris. Am I right, Harris? Harris, is that a name? Okay, I, I don't know. Uh, these are just names I sort of remember. <laughs> I know the names of Peter, It feel good, Harris. I'm sure. <laughs> Ian Harris, a legend. But anyway, so I, 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 I believe, I believe the literature suggests that uh, splinting has its role, but it won't. You know, you know, if you just splint everything, their period won't magically stop. But what about those no. teeth um, uh, where you? have What about those cases where you believe there's an occlusal role? Where does splints come into that? And what I mean by splint is actually sticking teeth together, not the sort of appliance to wear, which, which we already sort of touched on.
0: Yes, which can get confusing, especially when talking to, to, uh, about it. Um, yeah. Where's the role? You're right. Um, the only benefits of splinting teeth is patient comfort. Um, however, there are other roles when you do need to splint teeth together. Um, one of them I showed you before, if you're doing any regenerative surgery, what you rely on is wound stability. Um, so if you need wound stability, you mustn't have any mobility in the teeth so for the six months healing you need to you need to uh, splint to be to enable that bone to grow in the area in a uh, undisturbed site um, so it's important to splint then wire composite really with whatever it is it just has to be rigid um, and it has to be splinted now you mentioned it needs to be a thick bit of composite so it doesn't break that's exactly true but also if you're not making any occlusal adjustments. And you're not removing the cause of the trauma from occlusion, that splint will break. Um, because if the patient's abroxis, they will just break through it. So the cause of the trauma from occlusion needs to be adjusted there with adjustment. Um, So there is definitely a role for for occlusal adjustment in that sense, um, in the isolated tooth sense.
1: So now Richard shows another case, and this is uh, involving a premolar with localized uh, severe to moderate severe bone loss, uh, and it's just localized around this premolar tooth. Now, this premolar tooth, has got a significant wear facet uh, and it's heavily involved in the occlusion or the parafunction. So we're sort of postulating, hey, could occlusion have played a role in this case? But the interesting thing here is actually another cause was that this premolar did have a root groove that made it more susceptible to periodontal disease as well. So he showed that case and again catch it up on YouTube or on dental tubules. So let's pick up with the discussion again. I think we can see from the clinical photo, but um would you say that uh the cuspal inclines of this patient were very uh steep? Would you would you say
0: would- Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell from that photo, but yeah, uh, yeah. yes, it, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's, you know, it's interesting because uh, w- w- what I think of is most patients, most people are actually in, in group function. You know, as much as we, we think canine guidance is important, yeah. most people are actually in group function, especially if you're with any force. If you, if you think it's someone's in canine guidance, you get them to press together really hard as if they're power functioning and then go in excursions, They are quite usually in, in group function. So uh, it, it's good to mention here that some, some schools of thought suggest that actually more than anything, having, having it to make sure there's freedom from centric so that when patients do uh, have produced an excursion, that it's smooth. And uh, if you imagine a sort of steep cuspal incline, and if patients now moving their mandle, mandible, and it's almost like knocking and hitting against that premolar, it yeah. could be that. Uh, that, that rather than just pure group function, we will never know exactly. But Jesus just the sort of theory is why some people with group function, uh, and why certain teeth and, and, and when so it's all a very interesting area, uh, which we will never really have the answers to. But I just think it's it's another thing to consider that maybe it's, it could be it could be that tooth because of the fact it had a steep cusp incline. And from there was a lack of freedom from centric ie the teeth are knocking.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. Um, what I'm going to be looking at is when I see this back is whenever anyone talks about occlusion, I don't know if this is just me, um, it would be terribly embarrassing if I do notice it, but whenever you talk about inclines and, and guidance, I'm doing this i'm checking my own i'm checking my own and i can't help it and i'm gonna look back at this video and i'm gonna see myself doing it and be like oh but i hope you guys out there watching this are doing the same thing as me and i'm not the only crazy person okay so i think, I really I think many have...
1: people are
0: okay <laughs> I think many good. people
1: are absolutely
0: i can't help it <laughs> and then nice. you said with more slatter excursions like Am I group function? Am I canine guidance? Yeah, it's-, it's um, What do you yeah. think you were? What, what, what Before we had this chat, what did you think you were? I thought I was canine guidance, but I'm very now, aware that I've got big canine facets.
1: Okay. Now, if you actually press together really hard now, we can do it live now. You're going to press together really hard and you're going to go to one side. Do you feel your posterior seats touching?
0: I don't want to admit it because I feel like I'm admitting defeat. But yes, I do. <laughs> See,
1: it's, it's
0: it's it's food for thought. It's just that's this is why I love this area so
1: much because it's so fascinating. You know, uh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the, the day the day I broke Richard's canine guidance. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's okay it's alright don't worry I'm over it
1: you're, 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 a, you're a less superior human from when before we started this podcast to after this podcast
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now the secret's out it's out it's out uh, for everyone to see
1: Oh, oh brilliant! So, yeah, look, yeah. we've discussed cool. a few things. we discussed some controversial topics, okay? And you know what, Richard? The truth is, some people will listen to this, right? Uh, and and they will say, they will completely disagree with you, and and, and it, yeah. it's true, right? Because that's the school of thought, that's the background they have. But uh, I think we're we ha- as evidence based clinicians, we have to follow the evidence, okay? And right mm-hmm. now, it's very much strongly in the favor that occlusion and parafunction bruxism has a role, but it's not the primary role. Now, some clinicians get very upset about this, because actually, they place the role of occlusion as way higher, particularly in terms of, um, and we can talk about this if you don't mind, is uh, particularly in terms of implant failure. Uh, Some clinicians suggest that actually, uh, one reason why implants may be failing could be more to do with forces than any other factor. Uh, what, What does the evidence say? What do you think about that? On the same topic of forces and uh, and you know, periodontal destruction, tell us about implants because obviously they don't have any PDL,
0: they don't have the sort of yeah. um, proprioception. Some mechanical failures, definitely, N- mm. no doubt about it, and they need to be managed really carefully. Um, and implants are a they're a treatment modality; it's a choice. It's like a denture or like a bridge, whatever it is. You need to have the occlusion in mind. So it, any any restoration, you need to consider the occlusion. Um, if there are bruxes you need to address it before you start with your implant restorations and planning so that's that's uh, without saying um biological failures it's very much an inflammatory process um and i feel um the general consensus is is that it's an inflammatory process um you have factors which can increase the risk i, I mean there are when I present on peri-implantitis, there are so many risk factors. I mean, you've got all the ones you've got with perio, so all the systemic ones with perio, pretty much, with diabetes and smoking, etc. You've got then local factors like the implant design. Okay, You've got things like um, the angle from the implant platform to the contact point. So recently, I was randomized mm. control showing increased angle of more than 30%, higher incidence of bone loss. Uh, you've got implant surfaces, um, polished collars, a, 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 um, a one-stage implant versus uh, with soft tissue component versus a bone level. So many different things. Um, how many times you change the abutment? That's another debate. If you keep changing the abutment, yeah. does that... So I feel, yes, occlusion has a role, but there are so many others. And I think if you focus on occlusion as the bane of all problems, I I don't think it's right. But yes, with mechanical screw loosening, um, and then if that screw loosening led to an abutment loosening led to a micro gap with plaque, yes, it could cause bone loss. I don't think it's occlusion straight to failure of the implant. Sometimes are, you get. Sorry, I'm, I'm going on. Sometimes no, no, you get an in, initial failure through overloading it too early. That's a different scenario in itself.
1: Um, yeah, you, 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 yeah, I, I see a point <laughs> there, and I, I, no. no I, and I think the you know the answer somewhere where you know there are too many unknown unknowns. But you know yes. what what's good practice at the moment is not to you know look for look for everything your patient as a whole, all the factors involved, uh, and like you said, it, it definitely has a huge definite role in mechanical failure, screw loosenings and whatnot. Whereas the bi- uh, biological from what we understand at the moment is, is mostly inflammatory. And, and, and that's, you know, it's cool that you have that stance, and I yeah. respect it. And that is the, the, the main stance, you know, uh, you know, that is the body at the moment, that's the evidence body at the moment, and any periodontist yeah. would back you up. But you know, there are people who, 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 who are not guided by the evidence and, and, and have these theories. And that's all there is, but we have exactly. to sort of, you know, it, it's everything is in, in balance, and you have to reflect on
0: it. I mean. Uh, Evidence is based on testing theories. So it's not a bad thing to have different theories and different opinions. Um, I think that's what drives us and makes us better dentists. Um, so that's fine. Um, but um, with, I mean, that's why I, I say that checking the occlusion as part of your periodontal examination is a must. Uh, it's something which is often left... Um, and it is really important and valid. Um, just because I don't feel it's the primary cause of of periodontitis doesn't mean to say I find it any less important in progression of periodontitis. And it has to be addressed, especially when I show you those cases where they were in part exacerbated by a trauma from occlusion. If you don't treat the trauma from occlusion when it's exacerbated a periodontal problem, it's never going to be treated. So it's really important.
1: Thank you so much, Richard, for coming on. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, because I know you do a bit of teaching at the Eastman, uh, or yep. maybe they, they, they work locally to you and they want to refer your patient, how can, they, uh, re- how can they reach out to you?
0: That's very kind. Thank you. Um, so reach out to me. Well, um, I have an Instagram account, uh, London Periodontist. Um, my email, um, rh at Um And if there's any questions on trauma from occlusion or anything else, I'm happy to help.
1: Rich is a very uh, helpful guy. Uh, if you ever message him, he'll always uh, be willing to help you out. So uh, I would, uh, you know, young dentists who want maybe some mentorship on perio, uh, implant, that sort of stuff, you know, Rich is a great guy to, to reach out to. So uh, buddy, I, I, I'm wary of the fact that Sophie will probably waking up soon. Uh, and so will Ashan. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for, for coming on, mate. It was, it was, it was no, a pleasure discussing something very great. controversial with you. So there we are, we covered lots of different points. And essentially, It is something that I hope most of us knew already that as far as we know, a bad bite or occlusion or even parafunction just by itself won't cause perio. But for that susceptible patient, it's one more aggravating factor uh, that can lead to trauma that can exacerbate existing plaque-induced periodontal disease. So I hope you found that interesting. Thank you so much, Richard, for, for coming and sharing all that specialist information with us. I am so sorry, Richard. For ruining your canine guidance okay uh, that one's on me i apologize okay uh, so i uh, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end guys and i'll catch you in the next episode